weed, pot, grass, dope, Mary Jane, cannabis, marijuana. Whatever you want to call it, it's legal here in Arizona, both medically and recreationally. All Arizonans over the age of 21 can go to a dispensary and pick up their marijuana product of choice to an extent. But what are the rules and what are your rights? I'm producer Amanda Luberto and welcome to Valley 101, an Arizona Republic podcast about Metro Phoenix and today about marijuana. We asked you, our listeners, for questions regarding legal marijuana in Arizona. Whether you're a longtime user, a medical patient, or are interested in seeing what it's all about now that it's legal, we've got answers. Let's start at the top. What has been Arizona's journey to legal recreational marijuana? For that, I asked someone who has been covering this journey for a while. Ryan Randazzo is a business reporter for the Arizona Republic and has been writing stories about cannabis for years. Okay, Ryan, so what is Arizona's story with marijuana starting medicinally to where we are now? Okay, so Arizona's history with legalized marijuana is maybe more interesting than any other state. Uh, We weren't the first, but it has been a long journey. It took 24 years, really, from the first initiative. And what happened along the way really has changed politics in Arizona to a great deal. So in 1996, Arizona passed medical marijuana. And almost immediately, the state legislature basically threw that out uh, and didn't allow it. Essentially, in the 90s, Arizonans had overwhelmingly voted to legalize medical marijuana, and the lawmakers repealed it, and voters were not happy. So before they jumped back into marijuana, Arizona voters passed what is called the Voter Protection Act in 1998, two years later. And basically, that law says that if the voters approve something at the ballot box, the legislature cannot change it without a three-quarter majority, and even then, the change has to be to further the purpose. The Voter Protection Act says lawmakers can't just repeal something that voters have already approved at the ballot box. Ryan reminded me that this comes into play in all sorts of different political issues today, like education and tax measures. It did not uh, happen then until 2010, when voters actually came back and legalized medical marijuana. So in 2010, we got uh, medical marijuana. Uh, We started getting dispensaries a couple of years later. Arizona has one of the biggest medical marijuana markets in the country. Today, we've got like 300,000 patients with cards in the state, Uh, far more medical patients in our state than than in other places that are thought of as, as being more cannabis friendly. Arizona has also been a very profitable market for dispensary companies. There are a limited number of shops in the state, so there isn't a lot of competition. Dispensaries also control the growing and distribution of marijuana to other dispensaries. Currently, Arizona has about 120 or so of those shops. And then there was another ballot measure in 2016 that narrowly failed. That would have allowed recreational marijuana. That probably would have passed if there was sort of a more unified front in the people who were putting that together. But there was some division in people that wanted to legalize marijuana that year. Kind of too much to get into here, but um, they ended up fighting each other. That did not pass in 2016. Uh, They got their act together and brought back a ballot measure in 2020, and it passed uh, on a 60-40 margin. So pretty strong support for recreational marijuana. 
passed in November 2020 and in January 2021, all these shops that were selling medical marijuana uh, got licensed and were allowed to sell recreationally as well. Brian told me that part of the reason why it didn't pass in 2016 is that voters were worried that dispensaries would start popping up like coffee shops, one on every corner. Four years later, the Smart and Safe Arizona Act passed in November of 2020. It legalized recreational marijuana for adults, and to ensure dispensaries weren't on every corner, a limited number of licenses were available. A listener noted that even though it's legal to buy marijuana for anyone over the age of 21 with a valid Arizona ID, that they are still seeing advertisements for medical cards. Why would they bother getting a medical card if they can get it recreationally? There's a couple of reasons. Uh, One, if they are heavy users, then they're going to save 16% excise tax that's charged on recreational. Both medical and recreational are charged regular sales taxes, uh, and depending on what city you're in, that that varies. But recreational has another 16% on top. So people who are frequent users and, and you know people who are medical patients and are using this to to mitigate pain or whatever are definitely fall into that category they save money first off second the medical cards allow people to purchase more potent edibles so recreationally people can buy really strong strains of marijuana and they can buy concentrates that they smoke um, that are extremely high potency but they can only buy edibles that have 10 milligrams per serving and that's like an average dose of you know what's sold on the market here in Arizona. Medical patients can buy much stronger edibles. Um, and again, people who are sick or who are ill, don't enjoy smoking or can't smoke, uh, use those edibles. So that's another reason they might do it. There's also some protections in having a medical card uh, for employment. And um, people with a card have more workplace protections than people who are using it recreationally. So there are a few reasons that that people would want to continue to pay the fee every two years to the state for that medical card and to go through the trouble of getting a doctor's recommendation to use that card. So if you have a medical card, you can avoid an additional 16% tax, purchase stronger edibles, and it works as protection in legal situations. Currently, a medical card can cost up to $200. If you're thinking of signing up for a medical marijuana card, but are worried your application will leave a trail, don't be. The Arizona Department of Health, the doctor who recommended the card, and the dispensaries from which you purchase are the only ones who have access to that information. Your employer, parents, spouse, or even your future in-laws won't know a thing, unless you get so high that you rat yourself out, but that one's on you. There are also more freedoms to what you can buy and how much if you have a medical card compared to being a recreational user. So those folks can only possess legally an ounce at a time and they can only purchase an ounce at a time from dispensaries. People with medical cards can purchase two and a half ounces every two weeks. So they can be in possession of more uh, cannabis at at one time and can purchase more at at one time. If you are talking about someone breaking the rules, though, a medical patient would purchase two and a half ounces and could not buy more. They will they check what's called an allotment when when they walk into a dispensary and try and purchase and the person behind the counter says, well, you are at your max. You've purchased your entire allotment for two weeks, and here's the date when you could buy more. A recreational patient doesn't have 
an allotment. So technically, if they wanted to break the law, they could purchase an ounce today and they could go back to the same dispensary tomorrow and, and purchase another ounce. There's no record of how much they purchased. They would be in violation of the law if they had two ounces in their possession. But that would be a way for someone you know, who was looking to bend the rules that you know they would not want that record with the medical card. Another listener asked how dispensaries are regulated. Ryan said that the 2010 Medical Marijuana Act and the 2020 Recreational Act are controlled by a cannabis department under the umbrella of the Department of Health Services. They are responsible for licensing, inspections, including making sure workspaces are sanitary, but basically that they're all in compliance with the rules. Recreational Marijuana brought in $35 million in tax revenue in just the first six months. Because it's such a lucrative business, I asked Ryan if we were going to see a massive boom in dispensaries and how it will affect Arizona. So we're definitely going to see some more. Earlier this year, DHS issued 13 new rural licenses. So what happened in the past is when they issued the initial batch of licenses, some of them were for areas outside of Phoenix and Tucson. And people maybe opened a dispensary there and then realized it would be more lucrative to move to Phoenix. Or in some cases, they never even opened in a rural place. And then they moved uh, into the cities where clearly you're going to make more money. There's, there's more people. So they have what they called rural backfill licenses. And there were 13 of them issued earlier this year. Those cannot be moved to another place. And these are going to be, you know, like Graham County, Santa Cruz County, um, the rural places that are underserved that don't um, don't have a dispensary or only had one dispensary. Um, so those 13 new shops will show up. And I think they're going to be pretty visible because they're going to be in these smaller towns. And then there's going to be 26 new licenses issued as part of a social equity program. They haven't been issued yet. This is probably going to face some court challenges if other states are a guide. But sometime I'm hearing now early 2022, DHS will issue these 26 new licenses, and uh, those will be recreational-only dispensaries. All right, so a massive boom, not necessarily. But with the 13 rural licenses and the 26 social equity licenses, Arizona is looking at 39 new dispensaries to come. Okay, so now that you know the backstory and some differences between medical and recreational use, let's get to the product. Maybe now that it's legal, you're interested in seeing what it's all about, but you don't know where to start. I talked with Jeremy Collins. He's the Director of Retail Operations for Harvest Health and Recreation, based out of Tempe. Harvest is the largest dispensary company in the state, with 16 shops. I wanted to ask Jeremy some basic questions about marijuana. A weed 101 class, if you will. When you go into a dispensary, you will see strains classified as indica, sativa, or hybrid. So. What is the difference? A sativa is usually reported as bringing creative effects and uh, might be a little bit more of an energetic or uplifting uh, high that you get from that. Indica is going to be on the opposite end of that. That's like a lot of people kind of like on the street call it Indica couch meaning that that's going to be the more uh, you're going to feel a little bit more sedated you're going to feel more calm relaxed um, and would be something that maybe if you're having trouble sleeping you would want to go after an indica strain as opposed to a sativa strain hybrid is is exactly that it's got a little bit of both in there 
Tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, is the main psychoactive compound in cannabis. It's what gives you the high sensation. But as Jeremy explains, there are several ways to consume THC. There's kind of a ton of ways. It, it's like the if you can think of a way to take any sort of medicine, ultimately cannabis functions that same way. The most common way is through inhalation by smoking flour. And that's probably the way that it's been done the longest. Um, and through history, when we think about consuming cannabis or marijuana, we think of, you know, rolling a joint, lighting up and inhaling it. On top of that, you know, vaping it like through a vape pen has become extremely popular. So that's another way to inhale it. We've also got, you know, you can do it with a bong or a pipe or, you know, there's a very variety of ways that you can inhale cannabis. On top of that, uh, there's ways to ingest it. So through edibles works, we also have tinctures, which you take sublingually, which means underneath the tongue. And you can dose that out by the dropper. So you have a little bit more control of how much you're taking in. There are also capsules, there are suppositories in some markets that can help for certain certain ailments. And then the last way that I would highlight are topicals. So we have kind of bomb salves, lotions that have uh, THC and CBD content in them that can then be absorbed through the skin. Smoking, vaping, edibles, tinctures, and topical. Many ways is basically the answer. Jeremy brought up an interesting other player in this world, CBD. What is the difference and what does it do? When it comes to THC and CBD, we have to remember this is all one plant. So you will get some different effects, but ultimately it's hitting the same system of your body, which is the endocannabinoid system. So very much like you have a nervous system, you have a circulatory system, and what how they interact with your other systems um, is kind of differs what the effect is. We also have to always kind of preface that you know, just like any drug, whether it's a pharmaceutical or an all-natural drug, different people have different effects. They're, they might feel somewhat differently. But when we look at the very grand scheme of things and the masses of people that use cannabis, THC is typically going to, is what people get like the high from. They're, that's like kind of the psychoactive element of the cannabis plant. So generally speaking, the higher the THC content, the, the higher the high. When it comes to CBD, that tends to be related to like what we would call relief of some sort. Whether that is, you know, what, what is like calming you down, or maybe it's, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that different ailments like, uh, and symptoms of things like epilepsy or Crohn's disease can be treated with this. The CBD is usually kind of the active part of that. What you're gonna find most research shows though is that THC and CBD together is what's giving you the maximum effect of whatever you're using and what you're trying to treat. So that's the beauty of Prop 207 and really legalizing uh, cannabis in, in the state of Arizona is that people have, have had for years the option to just buy CBD and maybe get a little bit of relief, but now that they can get the product that has the THC content in it, in most cases, they're going to find better treatment or better relief or a better high because they have both of those elements. So essentially, CBD is the part of the plant that can give you relief, and THC is the part of the plant that gives you that high sensation. But together, it's sort of the best of both worlds. 
Jeremy reminded me that in a dispensary, every product is labeled with what percent THC and CBD that product contains. So if you're looking for something that's predominantly CBD with a little amount of THC to help it work, you have full access to that information. He said this is a great benefit of legalization. He also made note that dispensary associates, or bud tenders as they're sometimes referred, have extensive knowledge on the products. They're available to answer any questions and ensure that you get the products that's best for you. And that's sort of the beauty of being able to go into a dispensary now is that you actually get to, you know, jump in with them. And if if you want to take an hour and ask them all the questions in the world, you can. Or if you want to get in and get out, we have that option, too. But there's always somebody that's going to be able to help educate and inform if you aren't somebody who just wants to read the label and know what you're looking at. I asked him if there's a way for a novice to know what the best method is for them. Should you start with flour, edibles, tinctures? Where to begin? Jeremy said that there's an element of trial by error, but it depends on what you're looking for also. For instance, an edible. Um, So when you think of like a gummy or a brownie or a chocolate bar that's infused with cannabis, those have an onset that for most people is much longer than inhaling through smoking or vaporizing. If you're looking for a more instantaneous reaction, smoking or vaping is the fastest path. If you're looking for a slower release, an edible might be the way to go. He suggests edibles for people who are looking to use marijuana as a way to get a good night's sleep. You can take some after dinner, and by the time you're ready for bed, it should be kicking in. If you've never used an edible before, you don't just eat the whole chocolate bar. (laughs) Um, You're going to have a real bad trip. So you're going to break off a certain segment. They're always portioned out. Um, the beauty of the recreational market in Arizona is that all of uh, our edibles are in 100 milligram packages and then they're dosed out by 10 milligrams. So you can even break down, you know, when I get a 10 milligram gummy, I can cut that into quarters and I know then that I'm dosing about two and a half milligrams. And for me, five milligrams puts me to sleep all night. For others that maybe have a higher tolerance, they might have to take more. And then for some who it's their very first time, they might have to just do like one little sliver of that gummy, but it could take two to three hours to, to onset. So maybe you're intrigued to make a purchase, but the stigma of a pot shop is still intimidating. You know, the dispensary is a, is a much nicer environment, no matter what dispensary you're at, whether it's a harvest or, you know, all of our competition across the state, it's a much nicer environment than an alley. And, you know, we always tell folks like, This is going to feel safer. It's going to feel like a very traditional retail experience, um, but just of a regulated product. So it's not much different than, you know, if you go to Walgreens, CVS, a liquor store, there's a lot of different products that we buy on a more regular basis that doesn't feel quite as taboo um, as cannabis has in the past that we don't really give a lot of thought to. And I think that as uh, more people experience a dispensary for the first time, they realize this is no different. All right. So how does it work? If you're a recreational buyer, a dispensary will scan your ID to ensure that it's valid and that you're over 21. They might have you sign some paperwork or set up a profile, but this is more for internal data and promotions. Again, not something employers will have access to. I ended my conversation with Jeremy by asking him if there's any myths that are busting about the cannabis industry. The other thing that I think is really interesting is, you know, I think historically people think that dispensaries are just run by like these potheads who like to get high all day and you're going to walk in and everybody's going to be kind of aloof and this and that. And 
that's really not the case. We have some really awesome professional backgrounds that work in cannabis from all different segments. I mean, I come with a, with a retail background, but when you look across our whole company, there are people with retail and restaurant and hospitality and IT and major tech companies and farmers and florists. And, you know, it's, you have a hard time finding something that hasn't been previously represented in, in people's careers. So this to me is, is something that brings a lot of different people and different walks of life together. And that's what makes it so exciting because everybody can see what the benefit is. It's not just one certain class of people. Okay, so now you know how Arizona got here and some dispensary basics. But what are your rights? Recreational marijuana in Arizona has been legal since January of this year, and it's valid to be a little hazy on the details. Tom Dean is an attorney for cannabis, as he describes. I asked him some of the legal questions you guys submitted, starting with this one. If you buy cannabis from a dispensary and are driving to another part of town, is it legal to have as long as it's unopened, you know, similar to a beer can? Yeah, it's not at all like open container. There is no marijuana open container law. So it doesn't matter whether the, you know, the package has been opened or if it remains closed. It's all the same. Unlike with alcohol, where there's a distinction between an open container and, and one that hasn't yet been opened. So, for example, you could have, um, uh, well, you could have technically a, a half-smoked marijuana cigarette. That's fine as far as possession is concerned. Um, now, of course, having a half-smoked joint uh, in the car might suggest to an officer that you, if he saw it, that you had recently consumed or that you were smoking while you're driving and therefore possibly impaired while you're driving. So having an open marijuana package might lend some evidence to the prosecution if they're trying to persuade the jury that the driver was impaired at the time of driving. So it's probably a good idea not to carry cannabis products with you at all in the car just because it can lead to a potential DUI situation. So as far as possession, you'd be okay. But Tom suggests while driving to keep all marijuana products out of arm's reach, even in the trunk if possible, just in case you are pulled over by a police officer. This especially goes for paraphernalia and vape pens. In doing so, there can be no argument about smoking while driving. If you get cited with a DUI that you might have been smoking and therefore impaired while driving. Smoking and driving is also illegal in and of itself because a public roadway is considered an open space. So it's a, under the Smart and Safe Arizona Act, you're not allowed to smoke in open spaces or public places. A highway would be considered an open space. Um, are, uh, and so therefore, smoking on it is also illegal. So you'd be charged with uh, use of marijuana, which is up in, you know, already a statute criminal violation in Arizona, um, which can be filed as a class six felony. If you do get pulled over and a police officer is suspicious that you're under the influence of marijuana, they will do a field sobriety test similar to being under the influence of alcohol. Those tests were developed specifically and only for detecting impairment by alcohol, but law enforcement not having separately developed tests for marijuana impairment will just use the alcohol tests and then claim that, you know, they somehow are also valid for, you know, determining impairment as a result of marijuana. Oftentimes, um, when after the person is arrested, they'll then 
uh, contact a drug recognition expert or a, or DRE, who's an, a, an officer who's had additional training in a special course to detect impairment from substances other than alcohol. If there is suspicion that you are driving high, the police will do a blood test, which will indicate the level of THC in your system. If you get arrested, you must submit the blood test or else you will lose your driver's license for a year. And the police will most likely submit a warrant for the test anyway. Tom said it used to be an automatic guilty, but now under the Smart and Safe Arizona Act, it has to be proven that the amount of THC in your system could impair your driving. And this obviously isn't a PSA to go get high and start driving around because you probably won't get in trouble. <laughs> no, because you don't want, you know, one wants to get charged with a DUI um, and you don't want it because look, you're going to end up, they're going to prosecute it. You're going to have to pay money for an attorney, like, you know, anywhere, depending on the attorney, five to $10,000 to go to trial. You have to hire an expert witness that could be anywhere from $2,500 to $6,500, depending on which expert you hire. So you're going to spend at least, you know, $7,500 bare minimum, but if more likely over $10,000 um, to defend yourself against the, you know, because if you don't, if you try to go in there yourself, you're going to get convicted because the, the cop, the DRE, the drug recognition expert, the expert witness, the toxicologist on the state side are all going to say that you are impaired. And if you don't have an experienced cannabis attorney and a, an experienced expert witness on marijuana and impairment, then you're, the, the jury is likely going to just believe what the prosecutor's team is saying and you're going to get convicted. As far as smoking joints, how people smoke cigarettes in public, Tom had the answers to those questions as well. The limitations on smoking are you can't smoke in a public place or an open space. An open space is like a park, a street, a sidewalk. A public place is defined the way it's defined under the Smoke-Free Arizona Act, which deals with tobacco products and includes pretty much any business open to the public. So for a you know bar or a restaurant, for example, you can't allow people to smoke indoors. You have to have a patio outside far enough away that it doesn't allow smoke to come into the bar. That's exactly how it is now with cannabis. He also said that similar to cigarettes under the Smoke-Free Arizona Act, this does not apply to private residences. I asked if businesses are still drug testing employees now that it's legal. Tom said it's hard to tell for sure. There's not a lot of collected data about it yet. But that's a benefit in keeping or purchasing a medical card. For those employers that do test, this is one of the main reasons why you might want to keep your patient card. Even if you're 21 or older, if you are subject to drug testing at the workplace uh, and you don't have a card, you can be terminated for that for testing positive. If you do have a card, the employer cannot terminate you unless you are found to have been impaired at the workplace or in possession at the workplace or if the employer has to maintain a drug-free workplace. He also gave a reason that I had not considered. The other big major area for why you might want to keep your card, by the way, your patient card, is if you have minor children, because uh, there's very specific protections under the Medical Marijuana Act for courts interfering with custody and visitation based on a, a patient's medical use of marijuana that don't exist under the adult use law. So... Those are the two reasons why you might want to keep your card, yeah. While it's legal for adults over the age of 21 to grow up to six marijuana plants in their home, it is still illegal to sell without a license. 
You are technically allowed to share whatever you grow with other adults over the age of 21, according to Tom, as long as nothing of value is given in return. This also goes for those quote-unquote delivery services, like a weed Postmates of sorts. That's been established for years now under the Medical Marijuana Act that these delivery businesses are illegal. So, you know, important for everyone to understand, you can't do deliveries. You also can't do mail orders either. Same thing, you know, whether it's a delivery or mail order. Mail order, though, you're likely to trigger a federal investigation by the postal inspector or FBI DEA. So, um, you know, really bad idea to engage in actually using the the mail to, to send this stuff. Tom says it gets tricky because now it's not illegal to possess as long as it's under the ounces limit. And there's no law against buying marijuana illegally because for a long time, possession was illegal. But it is still illegal to sell without a license. All right, recreational marijuana is legal for adults in Arizona and some of its neighboring states, California and Colorado. But is it legal to travel with cannabis products from one legal state to another legal state, either via car or airplane? Every state has different laws pertaining to the consequence of importing marijuana into that state. In Arizona, it's a serious felony. Um, Depending on how much marijuana is involved, it's either a class four, three, or two felony. Um, uh, And so it doesn't matter if it's for sale or not. So even importing a small amount for personal use, um, that would be a class four felony. Um, It wouldn't involve, you know, mandatory prison, but prison is possible. The short answer is that it is very illegal. So, yeah, it's really important to understand that that is totally, totally illegal. And if you're caught doing it and you, you know, have a overzealous cop or prosecutor, they can file those charges against you and uh, it can result in your incarceration. Another big topic right now regarding legal marijuana in Arizona is the fact that the state is expunging from records those with minor marijuana-related offenses. It is free to file the forms, and people who are familiar with the legal system can file it themselves. Or they can seek the advice of attorneys like Tom. This is for people with minor dings on their records that are being held back from getting a better job or something so that they can move on with their lives. The last question a listener asked was about why most dispensaries close at 10 p.m. It depends on the rules of each municipality, but ultimately there isn't a state law about what time a dispensary has to close. It's possible that city councils will allow dispensaries to be open until midnight or 2 a.m. like liquor stores in the future. We'll just have to see. All right, listeners, this concludes your Weed 101 class. Thanks for listening. If you have any more questions about marijuana or anything related to Metro Phoenix, go to valley101.azcentral.com to submit them. You can find the podcast on Twitter at azcpodcasts and me at Amanda Luberto. Feel free to share this episode with a friend and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. We'll see you next week.